Well, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor. And uh, yeah, special welcome to you. Um, I was kind of hoping for a few more announcements because I sent Amanda actually to get me a cookie, but then he started praying. I had to come up on stage. So those cookies are ridiculously amazing. So those are a major treat. Make sure you get one after the service. We're going to be looking at a passage from John and also from First Peter. They're in your bulletin, but they're going to be up on the screen. So if you have a Bible, you can pull it out. Um, it's going to take us a while to get to John 9, so you might not want to turn there yet. Uh, but I do direct you to the bulletin because there's a place there to take notes as well. We're in a sermon series called Simple. Uh, ordinary is extraordinary. And we're trying to, in the midst of the chaos of life, in the midst of all of the craziness that goes on, we're trying to like boil things down and, and come back to what's most important. Get back to this simple place where we have a sense that we're doing what it is that God wants us to do and so that we have freedom outside of that to do or not do whatever we want. And um, so today we're going to be talking about simple mission, the, the idea of being a missionary in a sense. And uh, I want to start by just acknowledging the fact that for some Christians, the idea of being a missionary, the idea of sharing their faith is the most terrifying thing in the world. People kind of freak out. It goes along with sort of public speaking, like the idea of bringing up what they believe about Jesus um, terrifies them. And, and Jesus doesn't make things any easier because there's this passage in the New Testament where Jesus says, go into all the nations and make disciples. We ask the question, well, what does that mean then for you? Does that mean that you, that every single one of you has to share the gospel with every person in your workplace? Does that mean you have to share with every person at your school campus? Um, Does that mean that you've got to become a preacher or at least be able to talk as well as a preacher does? Uh, Does that mean that you have to answer all of the objections that anybody has so that no matter what anybody asks you at any time, in any place, you know exactly the right thing to say? I mean, these are the things that keep us quiet, right? Like, well, I'm not sure. What if they ask this? I won't know what to say. What if this happens? I'm not going to know how to respond to that. And so we clam up. And so many of us, we're sort of stuck in the tension. There's a tension between feeling guilty because you think you need to be sharing more, but then feeling terrified about the prospect of sharing more. And we just sort of get stuck, and we don't know what the answer is. And so we end up just sort of clamming up and, I don't know, hoping Jesus doesn't notice. Um, I think that what can happen is we have this sort of sense that some of us, not all of us, but some of us have this sense that I don't really have the personality to convince other people that Christianity is true. I've heard people do it. When they do it, I'm like, oh man, that's really good, but I could never do that. And we get sort of stuck. Um, And it's important for us because in some ways, some of us are just sort of hoping and waiting that somebody will ask us what we think about Jesus, and nobody, nobody does that anymore. Um, I think what happens more often is that people just sort of make statements about what they think and what they feel, and they just sort of leave them there. Well, it's important for us to understand that there's sort of a continuum when it comes to sharing our faith, okay? There's a continuum when it comes to being a missionary. And so I want to just put this up here and ask if you can relate to this. See here. So you've got sort of the continuum from being reactive to being proactive. Okay? So on the reactive side, 
This is when you answer people when they force you to, to they, 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 they pin you down and they say, stop. Wait, wait, hold on a second. Wait, what do you, what do you believe about religion? What do you think about, like I've seen you with a Bible or I've heard you say Jesus, like what do you think about Jesus or what do you think about capital punishment or abortion or who are you voting for and how does your faith relate to that? Like there are questions that people ask, right, where you are reactive, meaning you answer when people sort of force you to give some sort of a response, okay? Another form of reactive sharing is that you share your view when other people share theirs. So when someone else says, well, this is what I believe about God, you sort of take that as an opportunity and say, oh, well, here's what I think. Okay, again, that's reactive, but that's a little bit more than, you know, having someone have to ask you the question before you give any answer. Okay? And then on the proactive side, you've got people who, this is actually a good technique to use, there are people who ask other people what their view is so that you can share yours. So, hey, what do you think about this? That's really interesting, huh? Let me, like, help me understand a little bit better. And then here's what I think, or this is what I've been taught Jesus says, or this is what Jesus did this one time that shows us what he thinks. And so that's more of a proactive because you're initiating the conversation. It's kind of like when you want to know, you want somebody to ask you what you do for a living, and you ask them what they do for a living, right? Because you think after you listen to them, they're going to ask you, and you're off to the races. Same thing with Christianity. You can do that. And that's a little bit more proactive. And then there's the ultimate in proactive sharing, where just out of the blue, you share your faith in Jesus, People weren't talking about it. People weren't, you know, asking. It just wasn't going on. But then you bring it up. You put it into the conversation. So I want to ask you, think about, think about this for a second. Ask yourselves, like, which of these four things have you done? Like, think about the last six months, the last year. Um, which of these four things have you done in conversation with somebody? And... Like, when you did it, like, how did it feel? Did it feel natural? Did it feel really awkward? When you were done, did you think, like, man, I hope I never have to do that again? And the question I want us to talk about today is, does the Bible say that we have to do all four of these things? Does it? I mean, there's a lot of people who would say, if you're not actively doing all four of these things, especially the, the two on the proactive side, then you're not a good Christian. Some would push even and say, maybe you're not a Christian at all. But, but the question I want us to ask is, what does the Bible say about you sharing your faith? Because there are times in the Bible when it talks about sharing the gospel, when it talks about sharing your faith, where the Bible is actually talking to pastors and church leaders. There are times when the Bible talks about sharing, their, sharing your faith and it's describing the activity not of normal Christian people, but of pastors and leaders in the church. Not to every Christian. I hope that that encourages some of you. Because there's an enormous amount of guilt that can get put on people in their Christian life when people treat them as though they actually are pastors and they're not. They're not gifted that way. They're not wired that way. Um, they don't have a personality that would fit that kind of an approach or that kind of level of communication. And yet nobody makes those distinctions. And so if you're not sharing your faith proactively, if you're not willing to share your faith with the waiter or the waitress at a restaurant, 
what's wrong with you? I don't think the Bible supports that. There's, there's one letter in particular in the Bible that answers, I think, this question best. And it's the letter uh, that we call 1 Peter. Okay, 1 Peter was a letter that was written to Christians who just so happened to be living in a world that was radically different from them. Can you relate? 1 Peter um, calls the Christians at that time, calls them exiles. He says, y'all, you're following Jesus and you are exiles. Christians, you're going to feel like you don't belong in this world. You're going to feel like you are undocumented immigrants in the world. You're going to feel like, according to the culture of the world, you don't belong. You're going to feel like, according to the culture of society, that you're a drain on society. And that we, I guess we kind of have to tolerate you because we can't get rid of you yet officially. Um, and yet, First Peter says these Christians aren't just exiles, but they are elect exiles. They're out of place, they're out of step, but they are chosen and they're adopted by God. They know that no matter what the culture says, no matter what anyone else says, they have a relationship with God and that God approves them and accepts them during their time of exile. And so 1 Peter is an incredibly rich letter to read and to study and to contemplate and to think about if you find yourself living in a world that doesn't seem to be operating the way that you think Jesus is calling you to. And in this letter, Peter gives them instructions. How do you live? How do you share Jesus with others? And this letter, ironically, follows this simple series that we're in right now. Um, and it starts with the simple gospel. This is the beginning of the letter. First Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we see here the simple gospel is that Jesus is victorious. That he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And if you remember that message, he took the scroll that was in the hand of God. He alone was worthy to open the scroll and to take dominion over the earth and to bring about the purposes and the plan of God in the midst of history. And he's doing that right now. And so Jesus raised from the dead. He is our victory. Because of his victory, we are victorious. And he has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so it begins with the simple gospel. And then what it produces, second, is the simple life. Peter says, look, don't make a spectacle of yourselves. Don't live in crazy ways. Don't try to draw attention. Just live simply. Mind your own business. Um, but it says in 1 Peter 2.12, it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. These are the non-Christians. Keep it honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the idea here, Peter is saying, look, that before you talk about sharing your faith, before we talk about that, you just need to worry about your life. Get your life right. Live in a way that's honoring uh, to others so that people are going to malign you. They're going to say bad stuff about you. They're not going to understand you. They're going to feel like you're a freak and they're going to tell you that. But live in a way 
So that even though they do that stuff, even though, because they don't understand why you do the things you do, they don't understand what you're about, even though they're doing that, there's going to be a moment when the gospel reaches them, where God visits them with the gospel. And in that moment, if they see your life filled with honor, if they see that you're living differently and you have this hope, when the gospel finally comes to them, they'll connect the dots and they'll become Christians. It'll finally click for them. So he says that your life is so vital. And he also talked about simple community. And again, these are the sermons that we've already seen. We've already preached on these. But simple community, 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so Peter's saying here, like, live in community. You can't do this on your own. You're out of step. You need to be with other people who are as out of step as you are, but they're in the same step. Right? You need to know the other people that are playing that soundtrack so you don't think you're crazy. Um, and so we need simple community that, where people know you and care about you, where you know them and care about them. And then the last thing that Peter talks about in this letter is he talks about simple mission. And this is where it is. Okay, so simple mission comes at the tail end of the gospel of a simple life and community. Okay, this is when we begin to share our faith. Um, 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so here we have the principles. This is what God asks for. This is what God calls us to. This is what God calls every person who is in elect exile to. This applies to everyone, not just pastors. Okay, this is the place in the Bible where we see what our responsibility is in terms of sharing our faith. And so I want to dive in and see the principles, and then we'll look at, uh, at some examples in the scriptures that will, I think, warm our hearts and get us excited. And so this verse, it says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And so again, this is showing that the mission that we have, it begins with the life that we live. Okay, it starts with us honoring Christ the Lord as holy. And so what Christians are, are people who have made Jesus their king. Jesus is their Lord. He is their authority in life. Um, People have decided to follow Jesus. They've decided that Jesus is the most important authority in their lives. And so they're living in a way that makes them happy. They're living in a way that follows what he says. And so when you live your life and someone says, why are you doing this? If part of your reasoning is never because it makes Jesus happy and it honors him, then you might not be a Christian. Okay? If anybody has ever asked you a question, now whether you said it or not is sort of secondary, but if the reason why you are doing something in your life is never because Jesus wants me to and I'm following him, then Jesus is probably not Lord in your life. And you're not a Christian. But if you make decisions because you want to make him happy, if you make decisions because you want to honor him, if you do things because he wants you to, right? So if you are revolving your life around the authority of Jesus, where you are keeping him and his victory 
and his power and his glory in front of your eyes and you're making decisions in light of him, that's what it means to be a Christian. Okay? And so the mission begins with, with our lives. Um, but it doesn't stop there. It says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. Okay? So we need to be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks. And remember that chart of the proactive and the reactive? What is this? Is this proactive or is this reactive? It's reactive, right? What does it say? It says, be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks. Right? A defense, right? Defense is responding to offense. It's reacting to offense. Okay? And so, this is what Peter's calling us to. He's calling every Christian Anybody who is following Jesus, you need to be able to make a defense. Okay, you need to be able to respond when questions come. You need to be able to respond when issues come your way. Okay, and then what are we making a defense of? Again, the verse, just look at it. It says, make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Okay, so you need to be able to make a defense not to respond to every objection that there is about Christianity, okay? You don't need to be able to do that. That's not what this verse says. This verse doesn't say that you need to be able to respond to every question about every potential contradiction that's in the Bible. This doesn't say that you need to be able to prove to other people that the Bible is God's word beyond a shadow of a doubt. This doesn't say that you need to be able to prove to other people that Jesus Christ rose from the dead beyond a shadow of a doubt, okay? It doesn't say that. What does it say? It says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is the one thing this verse is asking us for. So what's it saying here? It's saying you need to be able to give a reason for the hope that you have. Presuming that there is hope, right? <laughs> there is hope in you. You need to be able to give a reason for it. What is this saying? Well, this is relating, I think, back to the simple life, right? That what God is calling us to do, what God is calling us to be are people who live and who have a hope in Jesus. That Jesus has given us hope. And, and so how does this hope impact our lives? I mean, it hits us in so many ways. Um, hope comes to us uh, through the gospel, through this good news of the victory of Jesus, that if he has won, if Jesus has won, he's victorious over sin and death, then Jesus accepts us as we are. He accepts us just as we are. And so what this means is that we receive from the gospel deep, personal affirmation. In the midst of all of our brokenness, in the midst of all of our failure, in the midst of all of the sin and the struggle that we have, right? Try as we might, we struggle. We're never what we want to be, right? We always feel like we're growing. There's things that we're working on. We see God at work, but we're not what we want to be, right? And in the midst of all of that, you have a statement from God that you are my son, you are my daughter, and in you I am well pleased. That God, because of his great love for us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that this deep, personal affirmation, it's not just that God loved the world, although he did, but he loved you. 
And when you put your faith in Jesus, you have this radical affirmation from God who says, I love you. I am your heavenly father and you're my child. Man, that gives us incredible hope. Man, that touches us to the core because no matter what anybody else thinks about us, we're the apple of God's eye. We're the object of his love. And this kind of love so deeply meets our needs. It it hits us at the core of who we are in a way that gives us a strength and a confidence that no matter what other people think, God loves me and he's the one who matters. And when you have that strength, you then enter into relationships and you are strong enough to serve. So you enter into relationships not for what you can get, but for what you can give. This is what hope does. When you have this hope, when you realize that Jesus' victory is your victory, when you realize what he's done for you and what he's doing in you, you're like, dang, man, how can I help other people? I'm good. (laughs) I'm not perfect, but I'm good. Like, Jesus loves me. I'm fine. How can I care for you? How can I take care of you? Sacrifice. I mean, Jesus, after what he's done for me, man, what can I do for you? And this is the fruit of hope. We end up with this, in the chaos of life and all of the confusion, we end up feeling like, you know what? I'm very, very humble about this. This doesn't make me better than anybody, but my goodness, I have truth in our world. Like in the midst of the swirling ideas about what's right, what's wrong, what's best for people, what's best for our country, and all the crazy chaos of politics, man, the word of God gives me confidence. Like I'm basing my life on the steadfast truth that God has revealed in the Bible. And this, man, this gives me hope. It's another flavor of hope. And it's not just hope in the truth, but then we have hope for non-Christians because anybody can know Jesus. Right? So if Jesus can get a hold of my life, then there's nobody that he can't reach. And so we base our lives around this and we begin to realize that, man, this hope really does influence us. And when we live this way, people eventually are going to ask. They're going to ask you. It's going to come up in conversation and you just want to be ready to say, Jesus won. Jesus won. You can ask him, like, who do they root for in life? And how would they feel if the person they were rooting for won the greatest victory of a lifetime? How happy would that make them? You say, well, for me, from my perspective, Jesus has won. And he defeated sin. He defeated my sin. He defeated, like, he took my guilt. And God has forgiven me and accepted me. And he's loving me. And he's working in my life. And I see him at work. And this is why I have hope. That's it. That's it. I mean, you want to get as practical as you can about what it looks like. And so, so this is really, I mean, this is an example of it. This is what the, what the Bible is telling us. We need to be ready to be able to tell other people why we have hope, which means we want to pursue hope and then pursue an ability to share why we have it. And so what does this look like practically? Well, we saw one scene of this last week. When we looked at John 4, the woman who was at the well who met Jesus, um, 
She met Jesus, had this amazing conversation with him. Jesus talked to her not about life or not about water, but about water that makes you live forever. She's like, I want this water. He says something about her husband. She's like, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, you've had five. And the one you're with isn't your husband. She goes, all right, you're a prophet. <laughs> Clearly you're a prophet. And she ends up leaving Jesus filled with hope. She's filled with hope. And so she goes back into the town on this simple mission. She goes into town with hope and a question. Okay? And what was her question? John 4, 29. This is what she said. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? This was her testimony. We talked about it a little bit last week. But so she comes in and says, could this be the savior of the world? That's her question. He told me everything I ever did. He told me all the bad stuff I've ever done, but he set me free. Could this be the savior of the world? Could this be the one that we are wishing for, hoping for, wanting to come? And I'm sure that people in that town would have had questions for her. Questions about God, questions about evil, questions about her and her life. And how can you come across telling us about God, given where you've been, given what you've been doing the last 20 years of your life? I just imagine her saying, look, I get it. I get it. These are really good questions. But this guy told me all the bad stuff that I've ever done, and he did it in a way that set me free. It's changed my life. And you haven't seen it. I'm just an hour old in this new way of living, but I'm done looking for men, for affection and approval and sex. And I'm done looking for it from men because I have his approval. I've got the approval of God. Could this be the savior of the world? He's changed my life. Do you think he might be able to change yours? That's it. How many of you could say something like this to someone else. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is how Jesus has met me and the change that I've seen in my own life. Could he be the Savior? I think he is. This is what it looks like. Could you do this? What would you say to somebody? What testimony would you give um, Well, there's one other example. This is one of my favorites in the whole Bible. It's in John chapter 9. Okay? In John chapter 9, we're going to start. This is in the bulletin, but in verse 1, sort of sets the stage. It's it's, as he, Jesus, passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. So he's born blind. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's kind of a weird question, isn't it? But it sort of shows the prevailing worldview of the day and even the the disciples thinking, right? Okay, Jesus, this man was born blind. That sucks. It's terrible. It's awful, right? Well, but we know, we know what happened. We just don't know who to blame. Was it his parents or was it him who sinned that this tragedy happened? I'm not going to answer that question right now, but in our next sermon series, Um, We're going to talk about this passage and a whole lot more. Uh, The next sermon series is going to start in two weeks. We're going to talk about how incredibly complex life is. 
how incredibly difficult life can be to manage. And we wrestle with stuff like this. Why do bad things happen to people? Um, Are these the only two answers? No, there aren't. They're not. Jesus gives a third answer, but we're not going to talk about it now. Come back in a couple weeks, and we'll talk about that. Well, so from this, Jesus heals this man who was born blind, and the whole town erupts. The whole town goes crazy, right? Because no one understands, wait, 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 what just happened? Wait, this guy, think about this. This guy was born blind, and so at least for 18 years, because he's now of age. We find out a little bit in, in a little bit, but he is of age. He's an adult, but this guy was born blind. As a grown man now, he sees. I mean, no one ever did a miracle like this before, ever. No one could conceive of what Jesus would do, that Jesus did this. This is the idea that God's kingdom is coming, and it came for this man. And so everybody's freaking out. Everybody's trying to figure out what happened, who did this, what's going on. They didn't have internet back then, you know, so you couldn't check social media and, and people snapping photos of Jesus and posting it on their, you know, on their, on their Facebook or their Instagram. People like, oh, that's the guy, I got it. You know, no, 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 there was none of that. It was like, wait, wait, what happened? Joe, Joe? You mean Joe's... He can see. What do you mean he can see? He can't see. He's been born blind. We've, we've been around him forever. He can't see. No, he can see now. What are you talking about? I mean, this is what's going on. They're like, wait, who did it? I don't know who did it. I don't know. Some guy. I heard he might have been a rabbi. I don't know who he was. I mean, all this stuff is going on. The town gets, it sort of erupts in chaos. And so look, verse 8 and 9, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, isn't this the guy who used to sit and beg? And some said, yeah, it's him. Others said, no, 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 but he's like him. Right? So some were like, no, 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 we know it wasn't him because he was blind and this guy's not blind. And then other people are like, no, 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 we think it's him. Other people, no, he's not him. And he's like, they're going, no, 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 it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. Right? I mean, that's the scene here in this chaos. Well, then goes up a notch. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and that he received his sight. They're like, well, clearly he wasn't really blind, right? Isn't this what happens? You know what? Like, I get it. You prayed and supposedly God answered, but come on, really? I mean, you know, there's probably another explanation for this. He wasn't really born blind, right? Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? Right? You feel that? You say he was born blind? How then does he now see? Okay, and then the parents answered. You gotta love this, right? This is real life stuff. You've been in this situation. I've been in the principal's office before, and I've answered just like this. The parents answered, well, we know that this is our son, and we know that he was born blind, but how he sees... We don't know. Ask him, and nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. And you're like, dang, parents, like, hello? Like, this is the greatest news ever, right? What are you thinking? Why aren't you being like, yeah, he was blind. Isn't this ridiculously amazing? Like, can you believe this happened? I can't believe it. And Jesus was the guy who did it. We need to worship him. He might be the savior. But that's not what they said. They're like, uh... We don't want to walk into this. You're like, what's going on? Well, it tells us. John's like, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. And so out of the synagogue, 
you're like, well, who cares, right? Just go the one down the street, right? The synagogue's on every corner, right? No, 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 no. Back then, to be kicked out of the synagogue was literally social exile. Like, if you weren't part of the synagogue, you were lame, a loser, you were nothing. You were dirty, rotten, you must have done something to deserve this. And if you're out, you're bad. And so, and this, again, small town, everybody would have known this happened. And so, when it came time, when the parents, when the question is put to the parents, they cower in fear. They're not willing to speak up. They hide. They're afraid of the repercussions of telling the truth. And so, what do the Jews do? They go grab the man for the second time. They called the man who had been, who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. What are they saying there? This man is Jesus, right? And so you have these religious leaders, and they were threatened by Jesus. And so for them, they could not have Jesus curing a man born blind, because if Jesus can do this, he might be the Savior of the world. And we can't have that, because if he's the Savior of the world, then we're screwed. Because he doesn't like us, and frankly, we don't like him either. And if God is with him, then God is not with us. And so, wait, come on. So, blind man, let's go. Like, admit it. We know the guy's a sinner. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He doesn't eat the stuff we tell him we should eat. He hangs out with the wrong kind of people. We know that this man is a sinner. So give glory to God and tell us the truth. And again, I've been in the principal's office. Right? This is worse. This is like third degree. This is like the good cop and the bad cop on TV when they shine the bright lights at you and all the pressure's on and they are literally trying to bring the entire weight of all of the authority they could possibly muster against this guy to make him crumble so that he will tell them what they want him to say so they can discredit Jesus. But what does this guy do? How does this guy respond? Verse 25, he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. You've got all these questions. You've got all these theological issues with Jesus. You've got all these things you want to argue about. Look, I don't know any of that. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Hallelujah. Friends, this is what simple mission looks like. Here's what Jesus did for me. Yeah, but I've got a question about, yeah, look, I get it. There's all kinds of questions. I don't have all my questions answered. It's kind of funny because the guy doesn't even know who Jesus is because when he interacted with Jesus, he was blind. <laughs> so he doesn't know what he looks like. And so Jesus actually has to go chase the guy down later. And he's like, hey, do you believe in Jesus? And he's like, I don't even know who Jesus is. And Jesus goes, it's me. And he goes, yes, I'm in. And so you have this wonderful thing that happens. But like here, here, we see someone, he's reacting to people pressuring him. He's reacting to this direct challenge of the faith. And they're like, we got objections. He doesn't do these things right. Look, I get it. There's so many good objections. I get it. Like, I don't have answers for you. I don't know what the answers to your questions are. They sound like good questions. They sound like the kinds of questions that need answers. But here's what I know. I was blind, and now I see. Could you say that to someone? How has Jesus changed you? What has Jesus done for you? 
could you say this? Look, that's a great question. <laughs> Man, I'm not even sure if I know what the answer is. I think I might have heard somebody talk about that. So I'm not sure. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. I had a broken family, alcoholism in my parents. And because of that, I grew up with depression and PTSD. And then I found Jesus in a church. And that church was a safe and healthy family. And God has helped me work through my issues. And I've become whole because of Jesus. How would you fill that blank in? How would you articulate it? We spent about an hour last week with the trainer, the trainees, the new elders, deacons, and the assistants training. Um, and we just talked about like what were the problems that Jesus and the gospel have solved for you in your life? And that was one of them. Somebody else said, you know what? I was incredibly self-righteous. I thought I was better than everybody else. And then I realized that I didn't have to be better than anybody else because Jesus was the best for me. Somebody else said, you know what? I couldn't make sense of the world. There was so much chaos and turmoil when I looked out into the culture and I had no clue um, what the world was headed for, what was going to happen. But Jesus has given me hope for the world. I know now that Jesus is going to make all things right someday. And so I was, I was lost, and now I have hope. Somebody else said, I was just apathetic. I couldn't be bothered by other people. I was so into myself. I was so into what I was into and what I was doing. But Jesus has given me empathy and understanding. That's another way of being blind, right? But now I see. These are testimonies from our own church. I was self-righteous and critical, and yet Jesus' love softened my heart toward others. I was blind to other people, but now I see. I didn't realize how bad I really was, but Jesus told me all that I ever did, and he did it in a way that didn't condemn me, but it set me free. Man, I love this guy. It's like my favorite guy in the Bible. He didn't have answers. To, well, maybe next to Jesus, right? I, I probably should say that too, I guess. Um, he doesn't have all the answers, their questions. Doesn't know how to deal with their objections. He doesn't have some long, eloquent speech, right? You don't have to come up with some flowery way to say what Jesus has done for you. He just says, this is how Jesus changed my life. That's his simple mission, and it's yours. It's yours. This is what God wants for us. And if you just need some hooks to help you think through why it is that you might have hope or what it is that Jesus has done, look, Jesus won. Talked about this already, right? It's his victory that gives me hope, that makes things okay. How about this? Jesus is winning. He's winning in my life. Not perfectly, but truly. I see God working in me. Jesus is changing me. And I see him in the lives of people that I know. And then Jesus will win. But Jesus is in a long and patient process to bring all things together 
things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus is going to bring heaven and earth together someday. And he's starting now. He's starting now. And so, and have you experienced Jesus? Don't share because you feel like you have to, some obligation. But just share because you were blind and now you see. And doesn't Jesus deserve the credit? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for opening the eyes of our own hearts. Um, There's nobody here that has physically experienced you healing their eyes. Although we have seen you heal people physically here, Jesus. But we are so overjoyed that your kingdom has come, that your power has given eyes to our hearts that were blind before. You are changing us from the inside out. You, because of your victory, you give us hope and that hope changes us. Oh Jesus, help us. Help us to be able to see how you have worked in our lives and give us opportunities to share that. Give us opportunities in short ways, not pushing, not needing to convince anybody of anything, but just giving you credit for what we have experienced from you. I pray that this week, these stories of what you have done would abound in our church as we share with each other, and they'd abound in our homes, our workplaces, and our neighborhoods as we share with others. Jesus, thank you for showing us that you are the Savior. And for those who are here and haven't yet called you Savior, would you reach out to them and show them how you would give them sight, how they are blind, blind to their sin and their need for you. Open the eyes of their hearts so that they would turn and put their faith in you today. We pray this in your name. Amen.